Welcome to series two of Dead Good Staffordshire with me, Charlotte Foster. Now, this podcast is where we talk about death and dying. Yeah, topics that not many of us really want to have conversations about, but we know we should be talking about them. Well, these podcasts are about having those honest conversations and having them now. Talking about dying won't make it happen any sooner, I promise. Not talking about it might make it actually harder. This week it's Dying Matters Awareness Week in the UK and the Dying Matters Staffordshire team have a number of events taking place. You can find out more on their Facebook page. Just search for Dying Matters Staffordshire. And the theme for Dying Matters Awareness Week is Are We Ready? In today's episode, I'm talking to Catherine Mannix. She's a former consultant in palliative medicine, now turned author. Her book, With the End in Mind, is all about preparing ourselves for dying. I began by asking Catherine what made her write the book. Patients really inspired me to write it, dying people. Um, I've spent my whole career mainly in palliative care, but also in um, cancer practice and general medicine, so amongst people who were very sick. Um, And I've spent my whole career in palliative care saying, you know, palliative care isn't just about dying, don't you? It's all about symptom management and you don't have to die just because you see the palliative care team and all of that. But actually, towards the latter third of my palliative care career, what I started to realise was that we're not changing the game about people understanding about dying. And although palliative care people are not seeing people simply because they're dying, because we see very sick people, we do see a lot of dying people. And I kept expecting that somehow public understanding of dying would improve as palliative care matured as a specialty and people would be less afraid and they would understand more about the normal process of dying. And that just wasn't happening. And I kept thinking, well, you know, somebody has to do something about this. There really should be somebody who will do something about the public understanding of dying. And then it very kind of gradually dawned on me that the sort of person who might be able to do that would be somebody who'd spent a career working alongside dying people and had, you know, worked in people's homes and seen how it works in hospital and had hospice experience. And so it was a kind of, oh, yeah, if somebody's going to do some some campaigning, I guess I could be one of those people. The book, though, was a, was an odd thing because it came out of the blue. I, I did a piece of radio, which was really exciting. I went down to Broadcasting House to do something Radio 4 for a show called One to One. And a, a literary agent heard the interview and got in touch with me to say I heard you tell a story during that interview have you got other stories I thought like actually I've got lots and lots of stories because I've collected them since I was a medical student um and so he helped me to make a proposal and found a publisher so that was not quite what I'd anticipated but how very lucky you mentioned that most of your career has been in palliative care what were your experiences like? I mean, everyone everyone hears about junior doctors and the pressure junior doctors are on, under these days in particular, but it's always been the case that junior doctors have had a, a tough time of it, I think. Yeah. Um, 
what were your experiences like as as a junior doctor and um how did you learn from others whilst you were a junior well i was a junior doctor under different conditions from current junior doctors um and they have um, better control of their working hours than we had but i think that's come at the cost to them that's actually higher than the cost of the long hours that we had so when i was a junior doctor uh, i was the i was the last year to qualify in medicine where we did one in two shift working so one in two working was that you came in at maybe half past seven eight o'clock in the morning one day to start work um and then you worked all that day all that night all the following day and then handed over to a colleague probably about six o'clock seven o'clock in the evening had a night off came back to work the next morning and repeated that so it was possible to work, you know, in excess of 120 hours a week on a rotor like that. I didn't have to do that for very long, um, but I did do it for a while during my surgical house job. And it meant that you could spend all day running the ward and a lot of the night in the operating theatre and then be back on the ward the next morning. So you could be very, very tired. But because every individual firm was... Have, having its own junior doctor on call overnight. It meant that in the big hospital where I did medicine, for example, in the mess on any night, grabbing a tea break or having a takeaway curry because there was never time to cook, um, there would be somebody who was working with a specialty firm that might be able to solve the conundrum that you were having with a patient you were worried about that night. So I think that we were probably less busy overnight than the current overnight nine or 12 hour shift workers are but we have way more companionship and so it was a lot less lonely and when you were anxious there was a lot more support around and you had the opportunity to meet somebody as they became sick and entered the hospital and see them every single day of the week over the week rather than having shifts when you weren't there so you learn the natural history of those conditions. You see how quickly things can get worse. You see how quickly things can respond to the right treatment. And you are able to accompany patients and families who are dying in a way that current doctors just don't because they hit the ward. They are flat out running around and then they just go, go home exhausted because there's fewer of them doing a much more busy job over that shift. What do you think needs to change then for the current junior doctors? Oh, I think that's a huge political question. And it's actually about whether we see junior doctors as doctors in the making whom we are training as rounded practitioners and treating with the same compassion that we're asking them to treat patients and families with, or whether they are simply a workforce that happens to get some training in passing. So I think until there are more of them, which is a huge expense for the National Health Service, so that they can get back to working in firms where you belong to a particular group of doctors and you've got consistency of support and you see patients consistently across the week. I think they will continue to struggle, but we are prisoners of 
a system where we're trying to make the money stretch, but more and more people living to a greater age with more conditions that require more treatment just to keep them feeling well enough to continue, um, and the potential to do very much more expensive things. So the NHS is going to become more and more expensive, and we, we need to be staffed adequately to pr provide it. I don't know. I, I, I'm not a politician. And I do think that, you know, every generation says, oh, well, the next generation is complaining. They should have worked the hours that we worked. They would die if they had to work the way they work, but the hours that we worked. But actually, I think perhaps longer hours with better companionship within them might be a middle place to look. Don't know. What would you say then is we've talked about the sort of the reasons behind you started yeah, writing your book starting your campaign and then the book coming from that is there such a thing as normal dying well I, I think there is a process of dying that's a recognizable biological process in the same way that there's a there's there's a thing like normal birth normal labor um you spend the whole of pregnancy having the kind of care that you hope will line you up for a normal, non-medically interfered with safe labour at the end of a pregnancy. So dying is, a, is another one of those biological processes that's got very clear stages and you know roughly the order of events. So every woman who's ever given birth to a baby has had a unique experience. Of course she has. But her midwife is watching the overall progression of a series of events that she's seen hundreds and thousands of times before. So normal dying, the process of a body becoming so sick that it can't stay alive anymore, is the same thing that happens to all of animals in nature. So the body becomes weary. It doesn't have enough energy to maintain all of its functions. The person needs more sleep and that recharges the energy batteries a bit. So we see people becoming tired, we see them taking naps through the day, we see gradually that the naps get longer and the energy recharge isn't as good and that unless their illness is affecting their mind or their brain in some way, they maintain their normal cognitive function when they're awake so they wake up they tell you they've had a nice sleep they want a cup of tea actually they can only manage a few mouthful of the cup of tea the desire to eat and drink fades and all of us have had that experience a little bit if you've ever had a really bad flu where you're just so tired that you can't get out of bed and people keep saying oh can I get you would you like some juice would you like some tea can I get you some ice cream oh I just can't be bothered with any of that stuff, that's that kind of profound experience of just being too unwell to be bothered to eat or drink. Now, that's a problem for us as human beings because we show people we love them by feeding them. Um, so people get very hung up about eating and drinking, or maybe that's something to talk a, a little bit about in a minute. But that background process of being more tired, needing more sleep, being less inclined to eat and drink, gradually bring somebody to a place where they are mainly asleep and occasionally awake. And the speed of that varies depending on what the illness is that they're dying from. So if you're dying of a 
cancer, which is the trajectory most people are familiar with, then that might take, you might watch it progressing over months and then weeks as people get more and more tired and then you see change from day to day. But in very, very frail elderly people, that might be a much, much more protracted period where they're mainly awake, but they can't get up out of their chair for months and months. And then occasionally there'll be a day where they're a little bit more able to do things. And it's a much gentler and less predictable decline. Um, and if you're in ho hospital with an unexpected emergency that's going to kill you, maybe you've got sepsis and everybody's trying very hard to reverse all of that. If you're dying or if you're sick enough that you're going to die, um, then that will all happen very quickly where people, your family will see that it's very difficult to rouse you. You're very, very sleepy and drowsy, um, not paying attention to things, don't feel like eating and drinking, you know, maybe over a day or two days rather than over weeks or months. But the process is, is pretty similar. And then the very end of life is that the person is actually not awake at all. They're actually unconscious. And at that point, when we are unconscious, the thing that's consistent is that only our breathing is still being driven by our brain. The rest of the brain being unconscious isn't doing anything. So there are those breathing cycles of fast to slow and deep to shallow. And it's really important that just like a midwife has explained to a mum and her birth partner what to expect during labour, we've explained these things to a person and their family in advance so that when they hear breathing that sounds deep and the person isn't managing their vocal cords because they're unconscious so they might be making a bit of a, a, a voice noise during the breathing you could think that person was groaning and it's really important that the family understands that actually this is a sign of deep unconsciousness this person isn't uncomfortable they're not struggling or a phase where the breathing is fast but shallow, you might think the person was breathless. It sounds like panting. So again, to be able to come in and say, actually, no, that your, your, your mum isn't struggling to breathe here. This is just the natural pattern of somebody who's very deeply unconscious. She won't be aware of her breathing at all. And particularly the noise that happens when you don't clear your throat. So that's the most sensitive part of our body because it's evolved to protect us from choking. So usually if anything is touching the back of our throat, we'll cough or we'll swallow. But once we're deeply unconscious, the sensory nerves aren't picking up that there's a bit of saliva or a bit of mucus there. But we're still breathing, so the air is bubbling through that. And it makes that rattling noise that gets described as the death rattle. And people talk about it as, if, as though it's something terrible. But actually, it tells me that that person is deeply, deeply unconscious. They're completely unaware of the back of their throat. And therefore, they won't be having other sensory input that's hurting them either. They won't be feeling breathless. They won't be feeling pain. They'll be deeply, deeply relaxed in there. And we're now getting very close to the time when breathing will stop altogether. So helping people to know and understand those things is really important. So they're not around the bed traumatized, horrified, listening to things that will wake them up in the middle of the night for years in their bereavement. And those are stories we hear. And then at the very, very end of somebody's life, what we see is that the breathing starts to get quite slow and then there are pauses. And sometimes the pauses can be quite long. And eventually there'll be a breath out that just 
doesn't have another in-breath after it. Sometimes it's hard to tell whether that's happened or not because there have been pauses for a while. Sometimes it happens without having had pauses and it happens so gently that the family don't notice for a little while that the person stopped breathing. So really not like what happens on the telly or in the cinema, which is what everybody expects because those are the only deaths people have seen these days. So normal dying, a kind of transition through weariness into drowsiness, through unconsciousness and breathing changes to cessation of breathing without being aware that that's what's happening. That's the, that's the process that we're hoping won't get derailed by symptoms that have been caused by the, the, the disease itself. So that's why we want to make sure in the antenatal period, if you like, going back to that midwifery analogy, that we've sorted out any symptoms. And we know that if this person develops breathlessness, it will be due to this cause and that would be the treatment to give them. And if they start to look restless, it's likely to be pain that's caused by this particular aspect of their illness. And this is the treatment that we'll give them. And it'll be in the house and it'll be available if the person's not in a, in a care setting so that we can support them to just carry on having that normal process without being disturbed by symptoms. That's the plan anyway. I love a good plan. You mentioned about how most people um, see dying and death just on the te- television or in the cinema or maybe even in the, in the theatre, and that's most people's only um, connection with people dying. Mm. How can the public then become more connected with, with death and, and dying? And, and should they actually? And what age? So excellent question. So how what are we going to do systemically, really, is what you're saying about public awareness yeah. of dying. So we do lessons about relationships in schools and that gradually develops into sex education and should transcend sex education into um, relationships and sex as part of healthy self-respecting relationships you know it's, it's much more than just the, the technical details of sex and contraception and I think that we need to think about life cycles in that way in schools so you don't just get a lesson in sixth form that's about ethics and euthanasia which is a very common request when you come to our sixth form and, and talk about dying we're studying euthanasia at the moment Okay, yes, I can I can do that, but I'm not just going to talk about euthanasia. But actually, if primary schools kept guinea pigs, you know, a guinea pig life cycle is short enough that the children who see a new guinea pig in reception will bury it before they get to year six, and they will see it become poorly, and they will be able to see a dead guinea pig not suffering just being so whether it's actually euthanized or whether it dies naturally they can talk about it they can be sad about it and it's really important that they are able to do that because the statistics suggest that in any class of 30 children in a British primary school there'll be one who is mourning the death of a sibling or a parent or a grandparent that they were significantly related to so bereavement is happening to children whether we talk about dying or not Um, So helping them to understand those emotions and helping them to understand what dying and death and being dead actually mean, 
I think is an important part of our social responsibility. And that needs then to be woven through the curriculum so that gradually we're talking about people and we're talking about relationships and we're talking about biological processes, but we're talking about supporting each other and we're talking about bereavement and we're talking about the importance of remembering people who we've loved even though it makes us sad, it somehow makes us happy at the same time and that that's okay. So, yes, I think we need somehow to get proper death education, not as an event at some key stage in the curriculum, but as a strand that's woven through the curriculum. And then we need people to talk about the normal deaths they've seen. So I get people who come up to me and they say, Oh, when my mum died, it was it was like you say, it was really gentle and lovely and we were all there. And, it, you know, it's strange really to say, but it was actually quite beautiful. But we never tell anybody because we know we were really lucky. And most people don't see that. They see terrible things. And we don't want to make people sad by talking about our lovely experience. And you just think, oh, dear, no, please go and tell people exactly what you saw give them a blow-by-blow account of what you saw because actually that's the way we will reclaim normal dying. When your friends have a baby, they tell you in oh such detail where they were, when the first twinges started, what embarrassing scenario breaking the waters took, um, where they were when they noticed there was less than two minutes between contractions and whether they were going to get to the place they'd been intended to give birth or not. Um, the midwife said this, and my mum, who was with me, said that. And, you know, the first sight of the baby, they describe it in huge detail. And actually, that's another biological process. That process of narrating huge events is a thing that helps us to put it into our memory instead of experiencing it as though it's still happening. And when we don't tell the story, we live with it still in the present. So I meet a lot of people who've got post-traumatic stress disorder from watching what was actually a normal death, but they misunderstood the noises and they thought the person was suffering when actually they weren't. I also meet people who've seen something horrid because we mustn't pretend that bad deaths don't happen, but they're very, very unusual, just as births that go wrong are very, very unusual. We've got to remember that when we're talking about the normal process, there will be exceptions. But we, we need to be talking about the normal process. We need to be helping people to understand what they saw and therefore not to dread their own experience when their own time comes, because actually looking after people while they're dying is the best way of understanding what happens while we're dying so we don't need to be so frightened about our own deaths. Well that was just part one of my chat with Catherine Mannix. She has so much to say. Our conversation went on for quite some time but it was fascinating the whole way through. In the next episode you'll hear Catherine's thoughts on how to prepare somebody for death and whether We should give people timelines if someone has a terminal illness. So really interesting chat, more to come as well. If you want to find out more about Catherine and her book, I will put a link in the show notes where you can find uh, Catherine's uh, website. But just to repeat, her book is called With the End in Mind. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Dead Good Staffordshire Podcasts. We will be back very soon. If you want to make sure you don't miss out, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you would like to leave us a little review, it will be more than welcome as well. <laughs>